The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Innovating Innovation with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you want to run with the Game Changers, you are in the right place. The buzz today, a quote from David Ogilvie, hailed as the father of advertising. Here we go. Surround yourself with partners who are better than you are. Question today, is your company treating your ecosystem like vendors that you squeeze and channels to push instead of as agile partners who are ready to co-innovate with you? Here's a reality check. The small and medium organizations in your ecosystem can bring a different kind of value to your company's innovation than you would get from startups and powerful companies. This may come as a surprise, but that's what we're going to talk about today. So what are the challenges and the opportunities of expanding your innovation capabilities to your partner network. It is there. It is ready and waiting for you. Our topic today is partnering up innovation through your ecosystem. Let me tell you who our panel of experts are. Are today. We're going to be speaking with Professor Wim van Haverbeke, Professor in Open Innovation at Hasselt University. We're also going to be speaking with Charles Bennett, who leads the development and delivery of business model and transformation guidance for cloud channel partners at SAP. And rounding out the panel is a gentleman who's been on here many times with us, Alejandro Pifare, SAP Global Services Innovation Team, and he acts as a coach and trainer on design thinking, business model development, and innovation management. Great panel, great insights. All three of them are thought leaders, and that's why they're here. So Professor Wim von Haverbeke sent me a quote from Ron Adner. I didn't know who Ron Adner was. He is the David T. McLaughlin D54-T55 professor at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. His book, The Wide Lens, A New Strategy for Innovation, has been heralded as a path-breaking guide to successful innovation in an interdependent world. I'll just stop there. And here is the quote Vim has selected for us. Quote, the success of electric cars hinges on the successful alignment of the entire electric car ecosystem. Uncoordinated investment in the individual pieces is a recipe for failure. Vim, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm fine. What about you? I'm Well, thank you for asking. I'm very well. I'm so delighted that you're joining us today. Where are you calling from, Vim? I'm calling from Singapore. It's uh, almost midnight here. You are a brave soul. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. So, Vim, tell me, are you a big fan of Ron Adner, and how did you pick this quote today? Well, I think it's a very important, a very important quote because if people think that it's always a question of having the right technology. And in the electric cars, we do have the technology already 10, 15 years. 
we drive already for a long time with uh, electric cars. Uh, yet you and me, we are, let's say, the average American or the average European is not yet driving with, the, with an electric car. So the question is, why is this the case? The technology is there. The technology, the, the cars are, uh, you can pay the cars. It's not too expensive anymore. And yet we are not driving it. So there is something else that is... Uh, that is uh, lacking. So and that's also what, what uh, uh, Professor Altner is doing. Uh, he is looking at the ecosystem. So he is looking at the barriers in the ecosystem which prevent us uh, to uh, use, let's say, the, the electric car uh, as, as, a, as a mass transportation uh, vehicle. And, uh, well, you have to look at the ecosystem. So the technology is there. Don't look at the car itself. But look at all the other issues that you have to solve before everybody is willing to drive an electric car. And you can think about, uh, let's say, charter points. Uh, you can think about people that have no interest or, let's say, uh, companies or institutions that have no interest in changing, let's say, from uh, combustion engines to uh, electric cars. Uh, think, for instance, about the oil companies. Think about the existing car uh, manufacturers and so on. So the question is, how can you build up an ecosystem in a way that everybody who might, uh, 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 who wants to change the, the let's say, the, the combustion engine cars into um, electric cars, how can we try to find an ecosystem, trying to find a group of people, group of organizations to pull that through? So it's not only the technology and not, not only looking, we don't have to look only at electric cars as such. But we have to look at the whole um, range of services and products around the electric car that have to change before we will see the electric car pushing out, let's say, the combustion engine cost. Thank you, Vim. Very interesting perspective. And I want to add something about uh, Mr. Adner. His article in the Harvard Business Review titled Match Your Innovation Strategy to Your Innovation Ecosystem is assigned reading in over 50 global MBA programs. I think that's impressive. But let me ask you a quick question, if I may, Vim. The question is, uh, the title of his article, Match Your Innovation Strategy to Your Innovation Ecosystem. Are we saying here on the show today that you need to have a separate innovation ecosystem or that the ecosystem of partners you've selected to do business with are probably ripe and ready and positioned to become an innovation ecosystem. You see where I'm coming from? So uh, can you uh, enlighten me on that, please, before we move on? If I understand the question correctly, indeed, you have to select your partners very uh, in, in an accurate way because... Um, we have seen in many innovations, right, that uh, you have your own technology that you will develop, but having the product in the market means that all the technologies have to be developed as well, and that all the partners which are responsible for a different part of the ecosystem to make the product successful have to be also willing to work with you. So the question is, how can you make sure that everybody who is has a stake in, in, in bringing this, in, in making the innovation successful, how can you make sure that all these uh, actors become partners? So selecting them and giving them a motivation to move in the same direction as you is a very important issue. And that's something what, what, we, what, what, we, what we forget. Managers are usually very smart people in managing their own, um, their, their own activities and their own business, but they forget that they sometimes need other partners to 
move in the same direction, and we assume that the other partners will move automatically in the same direction, but that's absolutely not true. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. I appreciate it. Yes, you did answer my question, Vim. Pleasure to have you on the show. And now I'd like to welcome Charles Bennett at SAP. And Charles has sent me a quote from Blaise Pascal. Let me just enlighten our listeners. Uh, Pascal lived from 1623 to 1662. He was a French mathematician, physicist, inventor, writer, and Christian philosopher. He was a child prodigy educated by his father, who was a tax collector in Rouen in France. And interestingly enough, in 1642, while Pascal was still a teenager, he started pioneering work on calculating machines. After three years and 50 prototypes, he built 20 finished machines over the following 10 years, establishing him as one of the first two inventors of the mechanical calculator. Who knew? Uh, He's also well-known for his The Lettre Provençale and the Pensée. I'll leave that alone. Unfortunately, he passed away shortly after his 39th birthday due to ill health. I wonder what else he could have accomplished in his lifetime. Here is the quote Charles has selected from Blaise Pascal. Quote, I have made this letter longer than usual because I lack the time to make it shorter. Aha! Charles Bennett, welcome. You know, uh, Bonnie, it um, doesn't happen so often in life that, uh, you know, when we meet someone, especially, uh, you know, in business, people are talking to us. Um, they tend to put us through this uh, insufferable presentation, PowerPoint, these, you know, huge long descriptions of things that they're trying to, to tell us about or convince us about. And usually when you peel back, um, when you scratch below the surface of, of, of what they're doing, if the bottom line is they haven't really prepared themselves and they don't actually know how to communicate to you. Um, mm. And because they haven't worked out how to communicate to you, they, they dress us all up in, in all of these things uh, to, to try and help themselves explain uh, you know, what, what it is, they're trying to, the point they're trying to get across. Um, by the way, the other thing about Pascal, which you didn't mention, I don't think, there is that uh, you know, there is, of course, a programming language which bears mm-hmm. his name. And yes. thinking, and thinking back to um, when I was at university, which is uh, I just missed the punch card era. Um, Pascal <laughs> actually was the the first computing language uh, programming language that I learned. Um, so there you go. But yeah, the, the main thing for me around that, what really grabs me about that that quote is, so often in life, people haven't really thought through the message they're trying to communicate to you, and as a result, we spend far too much time in presentations and PowerPoints and so on. I, I couldn't agree more, and shame on me for not remembering Pascal. I was, I am from the the um, key punch era, Charles. <laughs> I started out as a, a mainframe programmer. I won't tell you what year. I was carrying around decks of of a couple of hundred or thousands of cards. God forbid if you drop the deck, it was a mess. And and uh, once wow. I had a call from the uh, the the operator. I called me once at three in the morning, and he said, "Bonnie, the the program ab ended at card number seven hundred ninety three. What do you want to do?" It was three in the morning. I said, "Just give me a second. I I rubbed my eyes. I I was still dark in my bedroom. <laughs> rubbed my eyes. I said, "Okay, go back three cards. Input the number one on the console. Try running it again. I'll stay up for six more minutes. <laughs> if it doesn't run, call me back. Otherwise, I'm going back to sleep. And good luck to us all." Well, I knew my program. Well enough. It was it was COBOL. I was a top down COBOL programmer, and you know I could put put out two thousand lines of code in about two hours on a weekend, uh, all 
all handwritten and then have to key punch it on Monday. So anyway, those were the days. I did not code in Pascal. I coded in COBOL. I knew assembly language. I knew, and I programmed in PL1 as well and a couple of others in there. So yes, Pascal, one of the languages that, that eluded me. Thank you for the good memories, Charles. I appreciate that. And you are very right. There are a couple of other famous quotes about, uh, you know, give me, Give me uh, three. Give me a, an hour. I'll write you a twenty-page lecture. Uh, if you want me to write a, a two short paragraphs, it's going to take me two weeks. So, same thought. Yes, condensing your thoughts. Very, very well put. So, let's talk to now Alejandro Pifare from SAP as well. Alejandro has been on this series many times, and he has sent us a quote from Tim Brown. CEO and president of IDEO, I-D-E-O, who frequently speaks about the value of design thinking and innovation to business people and designers around the world. Mr. Brown participates in the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, and his talks, Serious Play and Change by Design, appear on TED.com. He also is especially interested in the conversions of technology and the arts and the way design can be used to promote the well-being of people living in emerging economies. Very interesting man. Here is the quote that Alejandro has selected from Tim Brown. All of us are smarter than any of us. Alejandro, comment ça va? Welcome back to the show. Oh, delighted to be back uh, here, Bernie. Um, the, the quote from Tim Brown was very much about teams, people working together for doing creative things. But thinking about this show... Uh, if that is true for a group of people, it's even more true for a group of companies. And doesn't matter how smart, strong, or powerful a company is, when you add someone else, has to be more powerful. Thank you, Alejandro. What do you think? Uh, what do you think Tim Brown would say if we knew we, he was? He knew we were talking about him in the context of partner ecosystems that are focusing on bringing the right innovation and co-innovation partners together? Do you think he would say, yes, you're on the right track? Do you think he would say, well, every ecosystem probably has some really good co-innovation partners? What would his approach be? Any thoughts on that? Um, to go into the design thinking spirit, uh, probably he will add that uh, we need to ensure diversity. So we need to be aligned, but every partner or every member of the ecosystem has to provide their own capabilities or skills or, or whatever. So it's about being together, but it's also each one of them bringing their own specific uh, knowledge, for example. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Good points all. I appreciate that. Gentlemen, I'm going to circle back to our professor on the panel, Vim Van Haverbeke, and we're going to ask Vim. I know he's in Singapore. It's very late, and thank you so much again, Vim, for joining us. Vim, what are you drinking right now to keep awake, or what are you planning to drink tomorrow after you wake up? What do you, what's your favorite beverage <laughs> over there in Singapore? I thought you would ask me what I'm drinking right now, because that may be more interesting what I'm, than what I'm sure. drinking tomorrow. Tomorrow they're going to be... Tomorrow there's going to be coffee, 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 coffee in the morning and only coffee. But uh, what I'm drinking right now is a Belgium uh, beer called Duvel. And Duvel, uh, as you can imagine, that's uh, uh, similar or that means in, in, uh, in English devil. And it's a devilish beer because it has 8.5% alcohol. 
Um, it's uh, it's blonde beer. It's well hopped. It's a little. It has a little bit of bitter of uh, bitter aftertaste, um, and it, it 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 has to be brewed 90 days before it's ready. So it's a typical Belgian beer. And for those that uh, for the people that don't don't know anything about Belgian beers, well, we are after the chocolate. We only have we have the Belgian chocolate, which are <laughs> world famous, but also the beers are let's say the best in the world. But most people don't know that. So we have like 600 Abbey beers, usually brewed in microbreweries. Mm-hmm. Uh, very special beers, usually up to 12 degrees, uh, sorry, 12% alcohol. And so very different tastes going from uh, uh, fruit beers to very bitter beers to dark beers, whatever you want. So if you ever come to Belgium, Belgium is the paradise not only for chocolates but also for beer. How lovely. By the way, I just Googled beer in Belgium. Varies from, as you said, pale lager to iambic beer or lambic beer in Flemish red. There are 180 breweries in the company, ranging from international giants to microbreweries. On average, Belgians drink 84 liters of beer each year, down, down from 200 each year in 1900. So in 100 years, they've scaled way back. Most beers are bought or served in bottles rather than cans. That's interesting because in the U.S. here, we have a lot of beer in cans. Almost every style beer has its own particular uniquely shaped glass or other drinking vessel. The glass, correct glass, is considered to improve the flavor. Do you subscribe to that, Vim, that it takes the glass to uh, to accentuate the right parts of the flavor? I've never heard that before. Yeah. Well, that's a way of educating people. If you give a Belgian, uh, Belgian customer a beer with the wrong glass, he will look at you very strange. So we really want to have the glass and the beer together so it, it makes one unity. And several beers have to be served in a specific glass because it, in, indeed it, it strengthens and it, it improves the flavor. Well, I have been educated. Thank you very much. I'm not much of a beer drinker, as you can tell, but it's never been. Uh, I'm going to have to find out if U.S. beer depends on the shape of the glass as well. Thank you very what, much. Yeah, you wouldn't. Funny. You wouldn't. Yes. But just jumping in there, just in terms of the beer drinking, you know, in, in Europe, um, and I was thinking about that reduction in the volume of beer drunk in Belgium. Remember that in, in Europe, it was safer to drink beer than water. That's right. So, that's, um, that's right. <laughs> Boy, this is uh, educate yourself on. Uh, I had, a, by the way, gentlemen, I had an engineer on one of our game changer shows last week, and I asked him what his favorite beverage was, and he informed me that in engineer parlance, you don't call it a beverage, you call it a liquid. So I think I'm supposed to say, what's your favorite li- liquid instead of what's the liquid in your cup today rather than the beverage? I'm just learning from every day. Charles Bennett, thank you for jumping in, and you're next in the in the hot seat here. Charles, where are you calling from, and what's in your cup today? Uh, I'm in the UK. I'm physically in Maidenhead right now in the, in the office. And uh, it, so this time of day, I enjoy drinking a cup of tea. English breakfast, um, what the English call builder style, which is strong black tea with a bit of milk. And if I'm not drinking that, then a bit of South African rooibos is my other mm. uh, beverage at this time of day. Very nice. We've had many of our panelists talk about rooibos tea. Thank you very much, Charles. What time is it there right now? Half past four, so nearly beer time. Okay. okay. Well, some would say nearly tea time. Thank you. Alejandro Piffere, where are you calling from, and what's in your cup today? I'm calling from Berlin, Bonnie, and I'm drinking coffee 
but a special one, because every time I go to Colombia, one a good friend, Roberto there, he chose the best one just for me. And I fly back to Germany with carrying this and all these small bags. So it's just coffee, but it's the best Colombian coffee you can get. Glad to know. Glad to know. Thank you very much, Alejandro, for calling in and joining us from Berlin. And I am sitting here in New York drinking a cool, clear cup of cool, clear water with a cool, clear straw and happy to be here with Vim Van Haverbeke and Charles Bennett and Alejandro Peferre. And we have to do a shout out to Oscar Olmez at SAP for putting together this panel and this wonderful topic. We are talking about partnering up, innovating through your ecosystem. A lot of good information so far. And we're going to take a quick break and come back with our roundtable. Vim has agreed to start it with me and we've got some really great information for you. So no matter what your business is, where you are in the world, think partner, think ecosystem, but most important, think innovation. And that's right. You're listening to us on Innovating Innovation with Game Changers Radio. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. We will be right back. Jason out. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. The pace of innovation is moving faster than ever, and the future of business will be defined by how quickly business leaders adapt to accelerated ongoing change. Factors as diverse as insights from growing volumes of data, the new global pool of talent, Resource scarcity and business networks and supply chains are shaping the definition of future success. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how business leaders can shape the future of change. Innovating Innovation with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. You're listening to Innovating Innovation with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Innovating Innovation with Game Changers. Welcome back. This is Innovating Innovation with Game Changers Radio. Our topic today, a very important one, partnering up, innovating through your ecosystem. We are speaking with three thought leaders in this field, Professor Vim Van Haverbeke, Charles Bennett, and Alejandro Pifare, and I'm Bonnie D. Graham. And we are ready to start the roundtable. I'm looking at the notes from, I'm just going to call him Vim, and a couple of interesting questions here. Let's get some level setting, as I call it. He says, do we really understand what innovation ecosystems are? And he says, innovation ecosystems Ecosystem is a buzzword. People are overusing it and misusing it. Okay, Vim, let's do our level setting here on terminology. So, what are, what are we should we be talking about? What should the frame of reference be for innovation ecosystems? Well, an ecosystem or an innovation ecosystem is a term used for 
uh, a, a set of a set of um, institutions or a set of actors that wants to realize a common goal. So that's for, for me at least the very the very important one. So it can be an economic goal, right, like developing a new product, but it can also be a societal goal, like for instance uh, improving healthcare systems and so on, right? And then. The, the, the specific thing about ecosystems is that you have to have a large number of partners and also a different type of partners. So if two companies or three companies are uh, working together on an, on an innovation, that's not necessarily an ecosystem. That's basically just a network, right, a partnership or a network. But if you, have, if you want to change, for instance, the healthcare system, then you don't need, only need, like, doctors, but you also need technology and you, you need uh, companies, you need the government itself, you need uh, insurance companies. So you need a whole range of uh, partners of different types of partners that have to work in a specific direction to make sure that the healthcare system can change. So the, the most important thing is that you are interdependent on each other to realize that goal. And it's the interdependency, the fact that you're dependent on each other, that makes it so difficult. Because you can make a step, but if the other one is not making a step, then you have a serious problem. So the question is how you make sure that people walk the same, the same walk, that they go at the same pace, right? So that's, that's basically how I understand uh, innovation ecosystems. Thank you very much, Vim. And by the way, Vim, you sound phenomenally clear and wonderful right now. So thank you for calling back. Let's get Charles Bennett mm-hmm. on the line here. Charles, what do you say about the definition of an innovation ecosystem just proposed by Vim? Charles? Thank you, Vim. Very eloquently put. And now let's welcome our second panelist, Charles Bennett, to talk about what Vim just put on the table. Charles, what are your thoughts? First of all, I completely subscribe to that explanation that, that Vim gave. I think um, it was a very complete explanation. I want to emphasize one of his later points, which is the interdependence of, mm-hmm. of the different actors, the different members of the ecosystem. There, there is a, naturally a strong dependence between the different parties uh, and the roles that they play. Um, and, and, of course, the interesting thing then is how do you stimulate the development of an ecosystem? How do you provide that catalyst uh, to create the energy around something which then uh, is, is the energy on, upon which the whole ecosystem feeds? I think that that's really a really fascinating topic as well. Then, you know, how do you create an advance as an ecosystem? Thank you, Charles. Alejandro Pifere, love to get your input on this. Please join us. Yes, the I like very much the definition of, of BIM, but the fact that everybody is interconnected and almost in the in an equal role sometimes makes things a bit slow or difficult. I'm, I'm speaking more, more from a business point of view, but the ecosystem that probably works well is one or a few are more or less shaping and guiding the direction of the ecosystem, and many people can play there. So in that case, you can move a bit faster. It's less democratic somehow, but uh, but you you are you are much more faster and you have more speed and you can achieve probably better goals. Thank you, Alejandro. Vim, I'm going to circle back to you and ask you if you have any comments to add to what your co-panelists shared on your talking point. Vim, what do you think? Yeah, the, I think these are very good additions and, uh, and, and interesting points. So Charles make a very interesting point telling that uh, 
yeah, you how how to stimulate it because you're interdependent. So how you can how you can make sure that uh, you can stimulate or he used the word catalyst, right? And that's indeed what you have to do if you're one of the main players in such an ecosystem. Uh, you cannot squeeze all your partners. You should not really uh, use your power uh, uh, exploiting your partners. It's just the opposite. You have to make sure that the whole ecosystem functions and by by nurturing them, by helping them, by supporting your partners, you probably end up much further than if you would be uh, exploit in a kind of exploitative mode, let us say. Uh, what uh, Alejandro is telling us is uh, just the other side. Um, he says, yeah, wait a minute. Uh, if you work together with many partners, you're probably going to slow down the whole process, which is uh, quite normal, right? If you work with m- many people, you're probably going to slow down the process. So there's some, you, you need some guidance. And, and ecosystems do not, meet, they do, not, uh, do not mean that you don't have any power, that you don't have any guidance. Just on the contrary. The more people there are, the more organizations involved in an ecosystem, the more the more people there are involved, the stronger the need for guidance, for power, for um, discipline, let us say. Mm-hmm. And you always, therefore, you always will find, let's say, what we call an, an orchestrator of such an ecosystem who is really uh, pulling the strings, who is uh, setting the, the pace, who is uh, guiding the whole ecosystem, and if necessary, if there is uh, disloyal behavior and so on, also a disciplining, it should also be a disciplining orga- orchestrator. Hmm, interesting. I'm just going to throw something into the mix here before I move on to some conversation points from Charles. Vim, when you talk about somebody who has to have discipline and they have to understand, are we all going in the right direction? And is everybody, I'll say cooperating, which may be the wrong word when we're talking about co-innovating because we want some disruption, I believe. But my question is, um, what size company are we talking about? Are we talking about a startup bringing in partners? Are we talking about a mid-sized company bringing in partners? And the different levels of culture in each of these partners, they have their own organizational hierarchy, mm-hmm. if you will, their own pecking order, their own culture, their own rules of the road. How do you behave? How do you speak? How do you disrupt? How do you intrapreneur within the company? And now we're bringing them into an ecosystem and expecting them to play ball, if you will, or walk the walk, talk the talk with a partner who is not in their company. Is this a major disruption of corporate culture when you start bringing people into this co-innovation partnership ecosystem? Yeah. If you, well, there's there are several things in in your in your in your um, <laughs> in your statement. So uh, the first thing is in ecosystems you have different partners, right? And you can have very mm-hmm. small companies working together with big companies, right? Like with, with corporate in corporate venturing, you have big companies that help small companies and so on. So this difference in cultures creates huge problems, right? Because a small yep. company has not the time to wait six months, and the big company needs six months because the management is so slow mm-hmm. to decide, and so on and so on. So you can imagine that if you bring together different types of companies or different types of actors, you end up with this kind of um, difficulties. Therefore, and, and I repeat, um, in an ecosystem, you have to manage probably more than just in a company. Uh, if you have a standalone strategy, you only have to keep track with yourself. But if you work with partners, you have to keep track of yourself, but also internally, I mean, but also, of course, with your partner. So it's not in, uh, ecosystems does not mean that it's easy management. No, it's more difficult. Mm-hmm. The, the other issue is that in an, uh, and I'm not sure if that was your question also, in, uh, in an ecosystem, you will see that some players take a, re- a leading role. 
And this leading role, depending on the ecosystem, can be a big company, can be the government, can be a specialized neutral orchestrator, or can even be a very small company. Because I have, for instance, a, a case where it's a Belgian company. It only has 30 employees. It's a, a bicycle part manufacturer, not a bicycle manufacturer, but a bicycle part manufacturer. Mm-hmm. It's considered nowadays as the apple of the industry because it's really working on design and so on. And this company, although it's so small, is really steering a network of 20 partners. And it's, be- and it's because of that network of partners that it can make uh, faster and uh, that it can make very beautiful uh, design parts or very beautiful uh, bicycle parts um, through that network in a way uh, that nobody can follow because partners work together in a trustful way and they go that fast that nobody can follow them. So even very small companies can take a lead as long as they have a very prominent position within a network. So size may matter, but not necessarily. Thank you very much, Vim. I really appreciate it. Uh, I know I threw this into the mix here unplanned, but I'm just, before we move on to some talking points from Charles, I'm going to ask Charles and then Alejandro to comment on my questions to Vim and Vim's responses in terms of, I'll call it, the behavior of the who leads, who follows, and who gets to say what parts of the culture contribute to this and, and how the outcome is judged, is, is gained by the right companies doing the lead in this ecosystem. Charles, any thoughts on what Vim added to my question or any of my comments? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, if you think about an ecosystem of uh, dependent uh, companies, organizations, um, we, we need to remember that they, there may be some dependencies between them, but they are separate entities. They are legal entities and they're right. They'll mm-hmm. have their own profit motives and so on. So um, I think part of the skill in, in um uh, orchestrating, managing any ecosystem is understanding what levers you can pull um, to get that balance between open innovation cooperation with having a directed um, you know, course that we're trying to chart as an ecosystem. Thank you. Alejandro Piffere, join us. Thoughts? Yeah, I like it very much uh, being comments. Uh, people tend to confuse size with power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the ecosystem, ecosystem game, it's about influence. Uh, who is the one who is able to set the rules and sustain the rules? And sometimes uh, being a bigger company doesn't make any difference. And, and for bigger company corporation, for them, when they be to the followers, they find that very difficult. <laughs> Thank you very much. All good comments from all three of you. I'm sorry to veer the conversation away from some of our notes, but I I was just very curious. So I'm going to move to Charles Bennett. Let's talk about value. Uh, Charles says value is always judged in the eyes of the customer. Truly innovating new solutions and services requires a deep understanding of the business challenges of our customer, how we understand our customer, our buyer. Only then can we create viable innovations. History is littered with great ideas that did not have a market to address. Charles, why don't you take us through this, the end goal of all of this fabulous innovation we're discussing. What's the point? The whole point here is to add value to our customers. And at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. um, the the people who will be financing us, funding us, are going to be our customers. So, if, if, uh, again, if um, uh, the end judge in everything that we do is our customer, whether they prepare to invest their hard-earned money um, in, in our innovation that we're providing them. Now, when it comes to 
my point about uh, truly innovating uh, mm-hmm. means you, you know you have to really understand your customer. It's not just about um, you know asking the customer what they want or what they need. And you, you probably had that um, you probably heard that quote by Henry Ford before. You know, if I asked um, my customers, if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Uh, so it's not mm-hmm. just about asking your customer what they want. It's about truly understanding what they're trying to achieve, i.e., their business challenges. Uh, uh, and then seeing how you can bring your skills, technologies, whatever it is, together uh, to help them address their, their real, the real challenge that they're facing. Um, uh, but at the end of the day, we may be extremely proud of whatever invention or innovation we come up with. At the end of the day, it's going to be that customer who's going to judge whether they're going to uh, prepare to invest their, their hard-earned cash uh, in our innovation or not. Thank you, Charles. Alejandro, please comment on what Charles just added. Mm. Um, the, the, when I do, I do a lot of uh, workshops and engagement with customers and um, our own customer companies. And, and when you see the company isolated, you get good ideas, but not powerful enough. Even if you are not in a, in a consumer business, as soon as you can reach the customer point of view, things get much more interesting. So it doesn't matter if you are in a, in which part of the value chain, if you are able to put your customer, the end customer perspective there, the value creation happen much more naturally. Thank you, Alejandro. Vim, circling back around the table to you, what do you hear? Anything you want to comment on from Charles and or Alejandro? Yeah, something very small, uh, but still I think important uh, as, a, as a reaction on what uh, on, the, on the very interesting reaction what I heard from uh, uh, Charles is mm-hmm. that uh, okay, you you have of course to listen to your customer, uh, maybe not directly, but you have to to create value for your customer. And the question is then if you if you yeah link that back to the ecosystem thinking. Usually, you only can create real value for your customer if you have a number of partners or actors that have a different function, but or is but that function is crucial uh, to create that value that you want to create for your customer. And so, the question is, how do you how do you work together with this? what we call complementers or can be suppliers or can be other partners in the network, how do you make sure that these people also uh, deliver uh, their, deliver mm-hmm. the, the value to the customer because usually you, you, you deliver jointly value to the customer. It's not only one big company that is doing this. You know, it's one company together with its partners that deliver that value. And so, again, if you really want to create value for your customer, you probably have to um, yeah, work together with partners. And, and so the collaboration with the partners is determining the value for your customer. If you don't work too well with your partners and if you don't work in a, in a, in a coordinated fashion with your partners, you probably never can deliver value to your customers the way you want. Thank you. Maybe Char- I'm performing. Make, I agree with you. make another yeah. comment yeah. there, Bonnie? Sure, sure. Go ahead, Alejandro. I hear you. Uh, uh, we, 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 we talk and we listen a lot about customer experience, which is much more than values. It's the whole process that a, a customer goes from even thinking of designing a product or service and, and even after buying and using it. And in this complex world, there is no way that a company can do all of that. Mm-hmm. So if you want to create a complete and, and successful customer experience, 
Ecosystem is not optional, it's mandatory. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. Charles, I heard you. Yes, I'm just going to repeat um, the quote uh, by Tim Brown, all of us are smarter than any of us. And I think the challenge mm-hmm. then in the ecosystem is, again, that orchestration of um, you know, potentially people who may be not used to cooperating at every level, but actually bring a big, you know, that catalyst uh, orchestration um, skill is in, in, in bringing it out of uh, that innovation, bringing it out of people in, in a joined up way. Thank you very much. Good, good conversation. I'm going to move it in a slightly different direction now. I'm looking at Alejandro's notes that he sent me before the show. And let's expand the concept of ecosystem here with the following from Alejandro. He asks, he poses the question, why limit the source of ideas to your R&D research and development employees when you can leverage all of your employees? It would be even much better if you include the employees in your ecosystem in a true open innovation spirit. So I I think this goes back, uh, Alejandro, to my question to, I think it was to uh, Vim a few minutes ago when I said I I was implying who should be part of that ecosystem, even when you're partnering with innovative companies, who should be the designated person to participate, the speaker, the mouthpiece, if you will, or the energizer who contributes to sitting around that round table for the ecosystem innovation conversation. So you're saying... Forget about just R&D. Let's include the whole employee ecosystem. Can you give us a little elaboration on this, please? Can you expand this for us, uh, Alejandro? Very interesting concept. And then we'll see what Vim and Charles think. Go ahead, Alejandro. Yeah. Basically, I feel a bit, I have to say, intimidated because this is being sown. He's the open innovation expert. I will try my best to do some, to say something to Mark here. The point is, have you not working a lot in alliances? And typically, is one designated person from one company, another another designated person from another. And sometimes, when they open a little bit, okay, you have a group for each side. But at the end, the, all the people in each company they don't, they don't speak each other. They go through channels. And, and probably, I'm, I never saw that happening. But I'm, it's more a wish. What if, if what if we connect? Complete companies, all the companies from one, with all all the employees from one for all the employees for others, and we'll let them work together. I, I know it's a very crazy experiment, but I will. Maybe we can get very good surprises from there. Interesting, Vim, chime in here, please. Yeah, very short. Uh, I think you you just have to make sure that everybody, so all your employees, are on one. One point to the other, um, helping you or let's say or supportive in that let's say open innovation process to work together with others. Uh, you have to do that because if you only limit it, for instance, to R and D, R and D can be open, but if the the manufacturing department or let's say the purchasing department or the legal department is uh, not uh, working in the same philosophy, it will just kill what it will just kill the open innovation in the R and D department. I have seen several companies where the R and D department was quite open, but because the legal department was not willing to sign the contracts in the way that the R&D uh, people really wanted, you see that, uh, that in a legal department can just kill that, uh, that initiative. The same happens for purchasing, for marketing, and for R&D, because usually they work together, for instance, in many companies. If they don't have the same philosophy of open innovation to work together with partners, you just can kill it. So 
uh, of course, that takes time. You cannot start with the whole company working in a kind of open innovation culture. But finally, you have arrived to that point where everybody is convinced that they should first look outside for a solution rather than inside. Right? So uh, it takes time. That's what we call the open innovation maturity. Uh, mm-hmm. You cannot build it up from day one to, to in a few day, let's say in a, in a few days or in a few months. It will take a few years to, to get that far. But companies that have that kind of open innovation maturity, you may be sure that uh, R and D, legal department, marketing, uh, the business units, and so on, they all think in the same way. And that makes open innovation so strong. That makes the ecosystem so strong. Thank you, Charles Bennett. Join us. Yes, so I think, um, you know, what Vim says there is, is absolutely spot on. And, and what we're referring to is, is the, the human condition and, and uh, corporate cultures, right? So how do we uh, allow people to, uh, and, and, and organizations, therefore, to have a culture which both encourages and respects innovation in such a way that it is taken seriously by all parties? And, and I, I agree with Vim's comments. I think that that is definitely not an overnight um, exercise mm-hmm. and uh, certainly want to be encouraged, absolutely. Thank you. Gentlemen, I did a little looking up here while you were all speaking. I found an article from 2011 called What is an Innovation Ecosystem by Deborah J. Jackson, National Science Foundation in Arlington, Virginia. And she makes an analogy, draws an analogy between an innovation ecosystem and biological ecosystems. Let me just read a drop here and we'll get a quick around the table, agree or disagree. She says, a biological ecosystem is a complex set of relationships among the living resources, habitats, and residents of an area whose functional goal is to maintain an equilibrium-sustaining state. Now, in contrast, an innovation ecosystem models the economic rather than the energy dynamics of the complex relationships that are formed between actors or entities whose functional goal is to enable technology development and innovation. In this context, and listen to this, this is very broad, the actors would include the material resources, meaning the funds, the equipment, the facilities, and the human capital, which she includes is students, faculty, staff, industry researchers, industry representatives that make up the institutional ent- entities participating in the ecosystem. And she includes, obviously, she's coming from an academic perspective, universities, colleges, business schools, business firms, venture capitalists, industry university research institutes, federal or industrial supported centers of excellence, state and or local economic development and business assistance organizations, funding agencies, policy makers. The Innovation ecosystem comprises distinct but largely separated economies, the knowledge economy and the commercial economy, one driven by research, one driven by marketplace. Let me just go around the table. Let me start with you, uh, Alejandro. Any thoughts on, on this comparison of innovation ecosystem with the bi- biology ecosystem? Do you agree? Yes, yes, but uh, in a biological ecosystem, an organic ecosystem, there are the laws of nature there. That organize mm-hmm. the thing. In an economic ecosystem, uh, they are the, the economic law, but as a participant in that ecosystem, you can design that too. You, you can go even further. So there are some logic you can to respect, but on top of that, you can create some kind of different kind of models. So you have a bit more freedom in a, in a business ecosystem. Thank you. Charles, what are your thoughts on this? Well, first of all, I think the, um, the, 
analogy applies. Uh, quite interesting that the, the, the point that um, is made there about uh, in, a, in a biological ecosystem, everyone's natural state is to maintain the equilibrium. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's probably one of the biggest challenges we have in in uh, adopting innovation and change in an organization is that the organization's natural state is, for most people anyways, tending to want to maintain the equilibrium. So quite interesting, that parallel. Um, but I also agree with what uh, Alejandro is saying is, is you know, we, we can be more directive. We can design certain things in, um, you know, when we're driving a commercial uh, ecosystem. Thank you very much. Vim, your thoughts? Did you agree with anything she said or everything, something? Yeah, yeah. So I think most has been already commented by uh, Alejandro and uh, Charles. But uh, you, you, what what we see here is it's, there's there is there is of course uh, an analogy. But on the other hand, you see that there is uh, some that there are some differences. So two of the, one of the differences that we in an innovation ecosystem at least we want to change things, right? You want to change mm-hmm. the healthcare system. You want to change, let's say, to smart grids and so on. All this kind of stuff. So it's not about sustaining. It's not necessarily about sustaining an existing ecosystem, so that's one difference. The second difference has already been mentioned by Charles, is that, of course, we have economic law, so that means we also have people working uh, within this kind of uh, ecosystems, and they can, if they do it at at least correctly, they can maneuver in a way that uh, they... um, uh, let's say, uh, alleviate barriers or they reduce the barriers uh, because they're always like different actors or different institutions that may um, resist, let's say, change, right? And so mm-hmm. you can, you, you, that's a complete different system you have in, in, let's say, the economic world because there you can negotiate, there you can talk, you can convince, you can persuade people to move in the same direction, which is probably not the same uh, in, in a biological system. So I would say on, to a certain extent, yes, there's a parallelism. On the other hand, of course, it's quite different, and uh, you have to be careful in making uh, the, the analogy 100%, right? Thank you very much. Alejandro, I started talking to you about including employees in this. I was trying to expand the notion of, I think you were, of who can be the players or the actors. I think we've used that term several times. Anything you want to wrap up on this before we move into our predictions crystal ball round? Alejandro? Um, yes, it's, it's something about the the behavior of, in particular, I'm a bit critical with big corporations. Uh, that the we tend to see uh, sometimes partners or ecosystem as something that they do what we don't want to do. <laughs> the, the the task that are not mm-hmm. so exciting. <laughs> or not so compelling, or not so value, okay, we found someone else. Uh, and this is a big mistake, and uh, you are wasting a lot of opportunities there. Uh, basically, if the, the partners, they bring their own capabilities, and you need to look for that, not because you want to outsource your uh, discomfort activities. Thank you, Alejandro. You know what? We are at the crystal ball predictions part of the show right now. So, Professor Vim van Averbeke, why don't you tell me if you can look into the crystal ball wherever you are today? I know it's very late for you right now. What do you see? I'm going to give you 60 seconds to wrap up what you see coming down the pike. Anytime in the future, I like the year 2020. How far can you see and what will change about this notion of 
partnering up, innovating through your ecosystem. We've had a very, very broad conversation here. So what do you see changing dramatically about this at some point in the future? Go ahead, Vim. 60 seconds. Go. Okay. So what I see is that uh, the evolution that we have seen from closed innovation to open innovation where companies really uh, work together with each other when they innovate, that this trend will move on and will not stay the same, uh, let's say, in the next 10 years. It will change into more ecosystem thinking. So instead of working with two, three partners, you will see that companies for more complex problems will work in, uh, in, in whole ecosystems, like we have mentioned before, but also with more different partners, including the governments, including um, the regulators. Uh, so it becomes more complex because they really touch on, on let's say, different uh, on, on, on complex matters in, in society. Uh, that also means that, for instance, for the government and for non-profit uh, organizations who are not that, who are not that advanced, as I say, in, in working in open innovation, probably the big change is still coming. I can imagine that governments that opening up, and some of them are already doing with open data, mm-hmm. but in order to cope with the big difficulties they, and the challenges they're going to face, they really have to change let's say, the, the type of, of doing policy. And instead of being a, a, a one entity in, into the society, they probably have to interact more with companies, with other organizations, and so on. So they become like, they also will become more interdependent. And so uh, for governments or non-profit organizations like NGOs, like institutions, healthcare institutions, and so on, the big change will still come. And that is then more interesting also. The question is then, what means a new? Um, what is a new way of uh, of a public policy? How should we conceive public policy? What is a policy maker after all? Uh, probably this role will change. Uh, the, the role of healthcare institutions will probably change. The role of electricity providers will probably change. The role of transport uh, and, and vehicles will probably change, as we see already for today. Today, so we have probably a completely a complete shift in uh, in innovating and changing. Things. Things, and the way you have to govern that is probably through ecosystems and innovation ecosystems. Thank you, Vim. Charles Bennett, I can give you just barely 60 seconds. We're almost at the end, so go ahead quickly. Charles, <laughs> tell me your predictions. Will do. I mean, I think uh, looking at it from a, in a commercial, a global commercial sort of mm-hmm. ecosystem environment, um, I, I've got this uh, feeling that we're going to see uh, this, this interesting um, division between fewer large organizations who are servicing customers and many, many more small organizations spawning customers. Uh, and I think that's about the proximity. So not only uh, proximity to innovation, but proximity to people you trust uh, to provide that value to you. So small companies buying from the company next door, but also having these very large entities. And uh, you know, the, the thing that's co- common amongst them is the user experience, uh, that customer intimacy and, and value-adding relationship. So I'm quite fascinated to see how those things go, but also interesting comments by Ben, very interesting. Thank you very much. And Alejandro, I can give you one sentence for your prediction. Keep it tight. Go ahead, please. My prediction is that pretty soon companies will deal and manage vendors and partners with the same kind of soft touch that they're managing customers today. It's all got to be very good, very well managed and very well treated. 
Thank you. A lot of optimism there. Professor Vim von Haverbecke, thank you so much for joining us. You can get some sleep now. You've been a champion staying awake. Charles Bennett, thank you so much. Alejandro Pifere, thank you so much. And again, a shout-out to Oski Olmes at SAP for putting this together. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Shout-out and thank you to Jason and the Business Channel team. And here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? You've got a business innovation ecosystem waiting for you. And if not, go build one right now. So go out and be a game changer today. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Innovating Innovation with Game Changers, presented by SAP, the best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join your host, Bonnie D. Graham, on Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.